All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss. And as always, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guests for a little while as we talk about all things healthcare, compliance, and health law related. So today, I'm really excited because I get an opportunity to talk to a senior counsel at Clark Hill, Jose Vela Jr., who I have formed um, a friendship with, who I've also been able to form a working professional relationship with now that he's come over to the light side as opposed to working on the dark side, um, as we always like to joke about. Um, Jose is a former uh, prosecutor with the Department of Justice, and I'm going to tell you all about this really amazing individual. Um, but today we're going to have a, a, a really in-depth discussion about civil investigative demands and the prevalence of these subpoenas, if you will, these administrative documents that allow a civil investigation of your documents prior to a prosecutor making a determination as to really the route that they're going to go. So a little bit about um, Jose. He's with Clark Hill out of um, Houston, Texas. They also have an office in Chicago, Illinois. And Jose represents clients, obviously, in the healthcare industry on compliance, insurance, payment and reimbursement, and information technologies. Uh, during his career, uh, I know it stretches more than 20 years as an assistant U.S. attorney. He led trial. He, he, he was uh, a lead trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice, and he investigated and prosecuted various healthcare fraud cases, including parallel criminal and multi-jurisdictional cases committed against the federal uh, funded health insurance plans, such as Medicare and Medicaid. And he spent a lot of his time engaged in the settlements of False Claims Act um, cases that have been brought against um, public hospitals. I think there was one that I remember reading about that was just somewhere in the neighborhood of almost $22 million. And, you know, he um, had some other really interesting cases as well. And during his, um, his career, he directed and collaborated, obviously, as a prosecutor with special agents, investigators, auditors, statisticians, the FBI, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Inspector General, the FDA, the DEA, all those fun three-letter agencies that when you start talking about the potential of them showing up on your doorstep, it kind of makes you sweat a little bit. And for me, one of the most important things beyond just him having a distinguished career for more than 20 years as a prosecutor, um, Jose has a military career that spanned 28 years. He led, he managed, and he trained military units, command staffs, and personnel to accomplish joint military options worldwide at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. He is a veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom and a retired lieutenant colonel with the U.S. Army. I salute you, sir. I thank you for your work, Jose. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here, and thank you for taking time out of what I know is an extremely busy schedule. Thanks, Sean. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, 
always enjoy the opportunity uh, to discuss healthcare compliance, uh, broad matters in the healthcare space, and, and any opportunity I have to educate individuals, to inform individuals and companies, uh, their officers, managers, um, frontline uh, first responders, I'm always happy to do that. Uh, as you know, uh, and many know, it can be very convoluted, very complex, very confusing, uh, constantly moving. It's not static, it's dynamic. And it can be easy to become confused uh, or misdirected, right? When you're talking to the wrong people and they're giving you the wrong information, uh, they can lead you astray. And, and unfortunately, uh, there's going to be those times when there's a knock on the door and there's a search warrant being presented to you, or it's a, maybe an OIG subpoena, or as we're going to discuss today, uh, a civil investigative demand by the Department of Justice um, looking for information, either through testimony uh, or through answers to questions or the documents they want produced, paper documents, as well as electronic uh, uh, records as well. Absolutely. And, you know, so you, you, brought up the fact that we're going to be talking about civil investigative demand. So for the folks that, you know, are working, you know, that, that work with me and that, you know, listen to our podcasts, obviously we want to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. We're talking about 31 USC code subsection 3733, and it's titled civil investigative demand. So real quickly, you tell me if I'm going down the right road, counselor. So when we're talking in general, right, um, we're talking about the fact that whenever um, the attorney general or a designee, right, um, has a reason to believe that a person may be in possession, in custody, or control of, as you said, documentary material or any information that's relevant to the false claims law investigation, that individual um, may or can, if you will, whatever the right term is, before commencing a civil proceeding under Section 3730 or under the False Claim Law or making an election under 3730B, issue in writing and cause to be served upon a person what is referred to as a civil investigative demand. So I, I, I'm, I always like to make sure that we're given the proper citations, that we're, we're headed down the right process. and. And really, there's four things that these are used for, and, and, and these are the ones that I hope you'll expand upon for us, right? So the first is basically to produce documentary material for inspection and copying. That's the first reason why, right, a CID is issued. So let me take a step back if I can. Um, so in my experience as an assistant U.S. attorney, when we issued civil investigative demands, those are issued under the False Claims Act because we're investigating violations, potential violations of the False Claims Act. And when we say that, we're talking about healthcare fraud specifically, right? The False Claims Act covers any contracts with the United States government, any transactions where the government is paying money for services or for goods. So for example, uh, during the Civil War, the union was purchasing mules, purchasing ammunition. Um, later, they came to learn that they were there was there was they were false actions taken against the the union, where the the mules were not 
as they had been portrayed and the ammunition was was actually short on the ammunition. So that sort of brought about the False Claims Act. Go forward 200, 250 years later, um, it's now much more expansive to incorporate any transaction involving the United States government where someone has made uh, false representations to the government in order to induce the government to pay money. And, and so here we're talking about in the healthcare space, right? So anything that the government pays for, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, because Medicaid is partially funded by the federal government, right. TRICARE for those who are the military and their families, um, and also uh, federal employee health benefits for federal employees. Uh, so that would also be federally funded as well in part. So any one of these programs where there is a suspicion that there has been fraud committed against the government, for example, uh, a provider bills the government for a service that was not provided, right? That would be a false claim. And so uh, under the False Claims Act, 31 U.S.C. 3733, um, that's where we get the authority to issue a civil investigative demand. And, and we have, under the CID, there are three types of CIDs. And we typically ask for all three. I, I did. So one would be uh, what we call written interrogatories. That's a series of questions. Usually, and that's right where I was going. And I'm sorry, because that, that sure. you're going right where I was headed. Um, the, 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 the requirement to answer these um, written interrogatories. So you started, and I apologize for interrupting, but you were headed right down the path where I was going. Please continue. Let's let's explain what an interrogatory is to the audience. Right. So an interrogatory is a question. This is, this is written questions, question answer. So they'll send you a series of questions. They call it interrogatories. If you ever have to, uh, if you ever have to be in court, and there's uh, a thing we call discovery, which is a process by which uh, the parties involved in the lawsuit. Uh, try to gain information from the other parties, uh, that process called discovery, um, where they send out interrogatories. So this is similar. Uh, the government sends out a set of questions to, to the company or to the individual. And it's the individual's responsibility to answer those questions completely and, of course, always truthfully. Um, so they could be questions about identifying individuals, identifying dates, identifying the location of documents. Uh, usually it's fact specific type questions where they're trying to, uh, figure out where records are kept, who keeps the records, um, things along those lines. And so important to note that there could be 30 questions. And each question could have six subparts. You're required to answer all of them. And you also have to certify the answers. So you have to sign a sworn affidavit as to the completeness and the accuracy of your answers. Now, for example, let's say you're a big company and the questions uh, cross different departments. Okay, so does this mean that only one person um, can answer the questions? No, to the contrary. What the government wants you to do is say, okay, some of these questions can be answered by one department. Some of these questions can be answered by a different department. So what will end up happening is you will say, okay, John Doe is answering questions one through six. Jane Doe is answering questions seven through 14. And you will attach two affidavits. 
one for John and one for Jane. And each one will certify the, to the questions that they answered uh, on the uh, written interrogatories. So that's, that's important to keep in mind. It doesn't have to be one person. Um, it can be multiple persons, as long as you identify what questions they're answering and they must certify the accuracy of it as well and the completeness. So that's it, basically that's that's the written interrogatories. Awesome. So real quick, and then we'll come back to the the CIDs. Um, again, you know, are CIDs primarily issued in False Claims Act cases because those are civil matters? I know there's so, a criminal element to the False Claims Act, but they're primarily civil, right? So the False Claims Act is considered a civil statute, and that those are that's a civil enforcement tool that the United States government uses again to to combat fraud committed against the government in, in every any aspect. For example, you have an engineering firm or a construction company um, who has a contract with NASA, and they falsify information in order to get payments from NASA. The False Claims Act can be used to recover the, the, the loss to the government. And also good to note in the False Claims Act, so that your, your uh, listeners understand, that let's say, for example, the loss to the government was $10,000. Okay, the government is entitled to recover three times the loss. So instead of $10,000, they can recover $30,000 uh, from the company or the individual responsible or held responsible for the violation. In addition to that, the False Claims Act also allows for the court to assess civil penalties. And those can range from around $6,000 to about $12,000, uh, give or take a few dollars, but just round, using round numbers, for each false claim. So in the healthcare space, what that means is an example, right? Just as an example, one of my last cases that I handled as an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney, um, involved two ophthalmologists here locally in Houston who were billing Medicare for a procedure called tonography. This is a procedure where they try to me measure um, the flow of, of eye fluid in order to determine eye pressure. Ultimately, they want to determine if you are um, at risk of developing glaucoma. Right. The problem with tonography is that it's an old procedure hardly used today, um, except for maybe at the medical schools and research institutions. These individuals admitted under oath that they did not perform tonography, but what they did do is they claimed that they had interpreted the, uh, the, the CPT code, the procedure code for tonography, to include the procedure that they were actually performing, which is they were taking eye pressure readings of their patients using a pen-like device called a tonal pen. Yep. Um, so it's like a thermometer, except it measures eye pressure. So they put it close to your eye, they click it, and literally within milliseconds, it takes a measurement, and a single measurement, a single point in time. So their, their argument was that their interpretation would allow for them to build a government for um, the use of a tonal pen to measure eye pressure. We were able to successfully uh, show to the court that that was an unreasonable interpretation that they were making and that it was not based in science. 
Um, it was not based in, in, in any uh, authoritative treatise, uh, textbook, if you will. And, and one way we showed that was to get a certified copy of the patent for the tonal pen. And I was able also to obtain a report and an affidavit from one of the principal inventors of the tonal pen, an ophthalmologist outside of Beverly Hills, California. And that was presented to the court along with our motion for a summary judgment where we asked the court to determine as a matter of law that these two ophthalmologists had violated the False Claims Act. So the judge agreed ultimately and granted summary judgment against both ophthalmologists. Now the loss to the government in that case was around $800,000. The judgment was for three times, $2.4 $2.4 million against each doctor individually, right? So this is joint and several, which means either one of them can be held responsible to pay the $2.4 million. The government can only collect $2.4 million. It could either be from one or both of the individuals. Um, so if one pays 1.2, then they would get the other 1.2 from the other doctor, for example. If one couldn't pay it, they could go after the other doctor for the $2.4 million. But, and, and this is my point here, is that in addition, the judge um, also assessed civil penalties, I think in the neighborhood of $120 million against both ophthalmologists. Wow. It may be the largest um, assessment of civil penalties against an individual doctor nationally that I'm aware of. I could be wrong, but it's a very high number. Um, now it's going to be appealed. So the government will have to wait and see what the court of appeals does with that. But I want to point out something. So we were talking about five, 6,000 to 12,000 for each single false claim. And this is purely the discretion of the judge. So it wasn't anything that like the government assessed it. It was the court that assessed it. Right. They had, we were able to show that they had submitted a approximately between 14 to 16,000 false claims over six years uh, to the Medicare program. Wow. So now granted, each one was maybe between 60 to $120, but it added up to about $800,000 that was paid for a service. And, And two things to keep in mind, it was a service they didn't perform, right? They admitted they did not do tonography. It was based on their after the fact interpretation, right. The tone, the, now just to make clear for the audience, the tonal pen, the measurement of eye pressure is part of a comprehensive eye exam that's already being paid by the government. And in fact, was paid in 99% of the time. So what these doctors were doing is they were, uh, at least that I can say that we alleged, and I believe we proved, we got summary judgment, is that they were performing comprehensive eye exams that included measurement of eye pressure and they submitted the claims for reimbursement and they were reimbursed for that service. But in addition to that, they were also billing for that same measurement of eye pressure separately as tonography. Yes. So they were Um, basically unbundling a service that was already bundled into a more comprehensive service. You know, really, really interesting. I wonder if the CMPs that were, that were leveled, by the judge in this case, putting aside the dollar amount, right? Because it's it's a nominal amount in the grand scheme of things, right? $60 to $100, right? Compared to some of, and I'm not justifying it saying, oh, it's it's a lower amount. My, my point is, I wonder if at some point the judge said, 
forget about the dollar amount of 60 bucks, right? Look at the fact that over six years, you submitted 16,000 plus false claims. That's right. intent. Right. It was, it was not accidental. And, right. and, and, and their interpretation was completely unfounded. Uh, in fact, I went to the trouble of getting certified copies of the uh, residence program for ophthalmologists. So the American Academy of Ophthalmology out of San Francisco, California, publishes the, um, the academic curriculum for ophthalmology resident programs around the country. So we got certified copies of about eight to 12 years of the program manual. And in the manual makes very clear the distinction between the tonal pen and tonometry, which is the measurement of eye pressure, and tonography using a Shiatz tonometer and the measurement of the aqueous outflow from the eye. So if you looked at that, you looked at the patent, uh, you looked at the testimony of the patent holder or well, former patent holder, the inventor, you know, it becomes clear, I think, that to the judge, it certainly became clear that they did not, there was no defense. There really yeah. wasn't. I, um, I agree with you. I agree with you. That That's just, that's, that's just bonehead right there. But I want to real quick. So since we're talking about the False Claims Act, again, I know we talk about the FCA all the time on our podcast with, you know, different guests. But again, because we are really talking about, you know, the CIDs, we're talking about the False Claims Act. Let's just make sure that we're all on the same page here, right? Because the FCA targets false or fraudulent claims related to federal funds, as Jose was saying. So its prohibitions basically go beyond false statements in documents like an invoice, right? So the FCA prohibits what they call knowingly making false records or statements that are material to any false claim, right? meaning that it includes possessing property or money intended for government use and failing to deliver it in full. Or if an individual, a perpetrator, is conspiring to violate the FCA. So um, as, as Jose was talking about, you know, the, the fines, the penalties are significant. And they range anywhere from about eleven thousand six sixty-five all the way up to twenty-three thousand three hundred and thirty dollars, plus three times the damages actually sustained by the government. And it's interesting because if you go back and and Jose, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on this as well. If you go back and you look at pre-pandemic in twenty nineteen, the DOJ obtained about three billion dollars in FCA settlements and judgments. Pretty significant. And in addition to the civil penalties, uh, the DOJ's investigation of potential civil um, FCA violations also resulted in the DOJ opening a parallel criminal investigation in many of these cases, because it's not uncommon, right? From your, your, your career, 20 plus year career as an AUSA, for an investigation that begins with the CID to ultimately result in criminal charges being filed against the business or their outfits. Is that, is that fair? So what I can tell you is from my own personal experience in approximately 80% of the false claim act cases that I handled. And I'll say that the vast majority of those were actual whistleblower cases that were filed by a whistleblower. Well, under the FCA, they refer to them as relators. 
but they're the whistleblower. It can be a current employee. It could be a former employee. It could be a competitor. Um, it could be literally anyone that has direct information or direct knowledge of an alleged uh, fraud, fraudulent event. It could be a consultant, for example, who's hired to do work and discovers uh, fraudulent activity. So it can come from anywhere, right? And so I would say 80% plus of my cases involve a parallel criminal proceeding. And then always start with a criminal proceeding. Uh, so for example, um, so let's say we have a whistleblower case that's filed. Uh, part of the requirements for the relator is to present their evidence, if you will, their allegations to the government through a disclosure statement. That's what we call it. That's what it's called, disclosure statement. So first thing first, they file the case and it's filed under seal. So that everyone understands under seal means the public is not, it's not made, made public knowledge. So the public doesn't know that this whistleblower case has been filed. Um, and that's under statute, that's under the law, that's the way that they're filed initially. This gives the relator the opportunity to inform the government of their allegations. It gives the government an opportunity to investigate those allegations. An investigation that can take anywhere from a couple of months to several years. Depends on the complexity of the case, the, the, what type of evidence is being gathered. It depends on whether there's this parallel criminal proceeding. And so I would, let's say we were having, uh, we'd get the complaint from the relator. We review the complaint. Um, we on the civil side, or I, uh, will review it and I will make a determination whether I believe um, based on the allegations, that there's a potential criminal violation as well. So I will invite my, uh, my uh, uh, folks over at the criminal side, I will invite them to send one of their AUSAs to join us for the disclosure statement. So we arrange to have a meeting with the relator and their counsel where they present their complaint and their allegations. As a result of that, 80% of the time, the criminal would open up a criminal investigation, a parallel criminal proceeding, along with the civil proceeding. And they will be parallel. They won't cross paths. Uh, they will each kind of use their own tools to um, identify witnesses, documents, and, and, and uh, gather the information. Now, many times when the criminal case is open, they will tend to take the lead. Um, and so, for example, they, they will... Um, they may have probable cause and they may make an application for a search warrant with the judge. They'll get the search warrant and they'll go in and they'll execute on the search warrant. So if that's what they plan to do, then of course we do not issue an OIG subpoena. We don't issue a civil investigative demand, well, at least not initially, right? right? So the search warrant gets executed and quite frankly, because of that, there's really no need for the CID because we're going to get the documents. Anyways. Uh, and that's always a question as well. Can, you know, can criminals share the documents that they got through the search warrant? The, answer, the short answer is yes. Yes, they can. Now, if it's a grand jury subpoena that's being issued, it depends, right? It's not automatic that it cannot be shared. I mean, the general rule Material that's obtained through a grand jury subpoena, which is a criminal proceeding that the prosecutor presents or gets, tries to gather information through a, a grand jury, um, that information and documents generally are not shared with civil attorneys. I say generally because there are exceptions. 
the, the criminal prosecutor can go to criminal judge, file a motion called a rule six motion, rule six C, I believe. And the, the judge grants the motion that allows the criminal prosecutor to share that information with the civil attorney. Now, some will say, well, well why, why have both? I mean, right. I mean, you know, if you're going to go criminal, just go criminal. Why, why do both? Well, because the focus is slightly different. The focus in the civil side is the recovery of lost funds and to assess civil penalties against the institution or against the individuals. Right. That's really the focus on the civil side. And there's benefits on the civil side. It's a lower burden of proof. Also, a preponderance of the evidence. Is it more likely than not that the individual or the entity violated the False Claims Act? Now, on the criminal side, the focus is different. The focus is there is to stop the bad actors. So, for example, if you have an organized crime uh, uh, organization that is created the this uh, illusion that there is a a clinic or a, a a family of clinics that seeing patients, providing services and billing Medicare for the services, but then the government discovers that there are no clinics. There are no patients. There are no providers. Well, how is this possible? Because the the organized crime group, they were able to get a hold of either through the black market or some other method, right. uh, the provider numbers. So those are your doctors that you have to bill under the provider's number. They got the beneficiaries numbers. Those are the Medicare beneficiaries, the folks who receive the Medicare services. And then with those with those two pieces of information, they can start billing. Because what, what, and you say, well, well, how can they possibly do that? Because the way it works is this is sort of like on the honor system. Right. Providers uh, submit claims to the government subject to auditing, subject to recoupment, so, you know, subject to the government going back and saying, well, we're going to take a second look at these claims to see if they're accurate, uh, the services were actually provided or they were medically necessary, for example. Well, this is so, the pay and chase model. So exactly. So it's done on the honor system. Now, of course, there are, there are exceptions, right? Some things require pre, you know, pre-authorization, but in general, and that's, and so the criminal focus is on stopping these mobsters. Okay. Stopping the, you know, the, the criminals from, from committing just outright fraud. I mean, right. intentionally, right. This isn't even an accident. It wasn't just ignorance or, or, or reckless disregard. No, no, they're, they, this is for sure. This is what they want to do. They know what they're doing and they're doing it. Um, so their focus is stopping them and putting them in jail, right? Getting convictions and incarcerating individuals. You can't really incarcerate a corporation, but you incarcerate right. individuals. Right. And so that's so civil and criminal, they have different focuses, but they collaborate. Okay, they work together. Um, so 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 that way they are able to gather information, uh, conduct witness interviews, and, and so forth. So in and, and and each case. It's different. Yeah. And that takes me back to really, you know, the Yates memorandum, right? Because it talked about, you know, that corporations don't act badly. It's the individuals within those corporations, right? So to your point, you're not punishing a corporation. You're going after the criminal element. You're going after the bad actors. You're going after the co-conspirators who are creating these schemes and or artifices against the government fair well yes yes and no because uh what doj has said is we're going to not just focus on the company 
but we're also going to focus on the officers of the company, the middle managers, not just the frontline workers. We're going to look right. at the managers. We're going to look at middle management. We're going to look at upper management as well. So that the, the old adage of, well, this is the cost of doing business, right? We just pay our fines and we continue our merry way. Well, the sentencing guidelines that, that are out there for criminal cases that involve corporations, that, you know, there's discussion about compliance programs, right? This is how compliance really comes into existence for healthcare enterprises and healthcare companies and individuals is that if a company's facing criminal fines, um, they want to be able to show good faith that they have a robust compliance program in place. Because that, that mitigates the sentencing. And it might even avoid prosecution. Because, yes, you can prosecute companies. Because right. what that does is they, you know, they, they can basically get a criminal, criminal uh, judgment against a company and assess you know, billions of dollars. Not just a couple of million dollars. I mean, hundreds of million dollars. Ask the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, oh, so, yeah. so these things can, do, do happen. Um, and so... There, there, there's the sentencing guidelines as well. If the corporation does, do they have a compliance program? Do they have the seven elements that uh, OIG says they should have? Is it a functioning compliance program? In other words, it's not just the book gathering dust on the shelf. They actually do use it. So when people, people have the opportunity to report um, events, occurrences, and that they are actually, there's actually a response. There's an investigation. Uh, there's there's a resolution. The the wrongdoers uh, there they are disciplined. I mean, you have education, you have training, you have a dedicated compliance officer, you have a compliance committee who's responsible to ensuring that the corporation meets those compliance requirements. I mean, so so what happens is the the corp you know corporations, particularly publicly traded corporations, they have a board of directors, they have shareholders. Um, that they have to answer to. And right. so ultimately, when there are these potential criminal violations, even civil violations, um, the corporation is going to, there's going to be a conflict of interest between the corporation, right, the entity, and the individuals who are alleged to have done the wrongdoing. And so it can't be that the corporation is going to cover for the individuals or protect them anymore. The shareholders are not going to accept that. The government's not going to accept that either. So these corporations have to have separate counsel and they have to have, you know, they have to defend themselves. And so if there's a wrongdoer, uh, the corporation is not going to say, oh, yeah, you know, this, yeah, we told Johnny to do this and, you know, doing it on our behalf. No, right. quite to the contrary. If Johnny was a, a lone wolf, um, then they're, they're going to lay him out. Because that Absolutely. they have to protect the interests of the company, which is in the best interest of the shareholders, not the individual corporate officer. Right. And so Yates and and Holder, Holder and the other AGs have basically said, okay, we're not just going to look at the companies anymore, because you're right, uh, Sean, uh, individuals make things happen. And so we want to go after the managers and the officers who are directing uh, for our frontline folks, you know, maybe it's pharma, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical sales people uh, who are trying to uh, trying to wine and dine a doctor to swap medicines uh, to or to increase the prescription of medications to their patients, even if they may not medically need them. Um, so 
those individuals aren't really acting on their own. They're, this right. is institutional. The, the, their, their regional manager, their area manager, um, they go to training events and where they're taught, you know, these are the things that we use that we employ to try to get doctors to prescribe our medication versus our competitor's medication or to increase the, the amount of uh, the prescriptions that are being, are being doled out to, the, to, their, to their patients. Um, so, so yeah, so criminal and civil, we work together. We have slightly different focus. They have obviously a higher burden of proof in court. Uh, they have to show by uh, 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 beyond a reasonable doubt that, uh, that the person or the company committed the crime. So it's a much, much higher burden. Yep. Now, well, it doesn't mean 100%. Yeah. People always ask, well, what does that mean beyond a reasonable doubt? And it's really, a, it's not, it's difficult to put a, a, an exact percent on it, but it's probably in the neighborhood of 90%. So it's pretty high. Wow. It's right? that it's high of a threshold. It's pretty high. Yeah, it's pretty high threshold. And, and so in practical terms, there are also occasions when criminal division will review someone's allegations and determine that there is not enough evidence to support a prosecution criminally, then they will refer it over to the civil division where then we take over and we have obviously a lower burden. And so we're not, we're not bound by the same. And if long we can show uh, by clear preponderance and more than 50% that the individual or the entity violated the False Claims Act, then we can get a judgment, a civil judgment entered against them, like our two ophthalmologists that I spoke about earlier. Right. We can get a civil judgment entered against them, against the entity and against the individuals as well. And we, we prefer the individuals because many times, if it's a small practice, uh, particularly if they are, like in these, this case, we had alleged that they were committing widespread fraud, 13,000 claims. Um, it, 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 the individuals are the real targets, one, because they're, they're the perpetrators, and, and two, because the clinic has probably already been gutted out of their assets, right? There's, there's not going to be any money in the bank account to pay the government back for the loss. Uh, there, there's not going to be any equipment to repossess because it's old or, or doesn't exist. Um, but if you go after the individuals and you get judgments against them, then that will follow them individually. Um, they might be suspended from the Medicare program. They might have their state license suspended, so they won't be able to practice medicine. Yeah, they get a uh, revocation of their Medicare number. They're debarred from the federal payer program. They're excluded. Basically, their career in medicine is over. Potentially, right? It's a risk. Okay, right. it's a risk. And it depends, you know, case by case. But obviously, when you are faced with a CID, um, it's not something to ignore. It's not yep. something to file away. Uh, well, I have G. some questions. Yeah. So I want to have some questions that I want to, I, I want to just put a bow on a couple of things that we've talked about because we, we, we started off talking about the CIDs and then obviously, you know, it was a natural flow to go to, you know, the false claims act and then to talk about the criminal, you know, component of the statutes and then the referring back and forth between criminal and civil. A couple of things that I want to kind of tie together, and then I want to go back and ask some questions about the CIDs. So first, um, as, as you've been listening to this podcast for our listeners, Jose talked about the fact that 80% of his cases 
turned into a criminal prosecution at some point. So the other side of that spectrum is to say only 20% of civil matters that Jose dealt with did not get referred for criminal prosecution. I mean, that's, that's significant. This is one AUSA. That is a significant percentage. Less than 20% stayed as a pure civil case, with 80% of his cases being shared with the criminal division. The second thing I want to talk about is Jose did a great job of linking in the aspects of a corporate compliance program. There's a fantastic document that I use all the time. Um, and and I, I really want people to continue to monitor this document because it does get updated annually. It is the DOJ Criminal Division Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. I call it the prosecutor's playbook because it provides individuals a roadmap as to the things that the DOJ says a prosecutor should and could consider prior to issuing a charging document, prior to entering into a settlement agreement, or considering other things like a non-prosecutorial prosecutorial agreement. And as Jose was talking about this, it reminded me of the three critical questions that the government asks when it comes to making a determination as to whether or not you have a bona fide corporate compliance program, meaning you have established a culture of compliance in your organization. And the three questions are very simple. One, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Second, is the program itself being applied earnestly and in good faith. Jose, use those words. You're demonstrating a good faith effort to comply. It doesn't mean that a corporate compliance program is going to prevent every single mistake from happening. But what the corporate compliance program does is says, even though a mistake happened, it most likely didn't happen with a level of intent. It was a mistake. It was an erroneous claim. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is the program itself adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? And then the last part of this is, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? I tell people all the time, and Jose, excuse me, I just want to get your take on this real quick. When, when you were doing an investigation or you were making a determination to move towards a prosecution or enter into a settlement agreement and somebody handed you a three ring binder as an AUSA and said, here's my corporate compliance program. And you could look at it and you knew that this thing was nothing more than a paperweight. It was a template. It was something that, you know, we, I call it a, a compliance plan in a box. You go onto the internet, you pay 99 95 and you know, some, some, consultant or some lawyer who's not really a healthcare centered attorney decided, eh, I'm, I'm going to push something out because I could probably make 10, 15 grand a year on it with some updates. And, you know, it says practice. And then you just 
go into the, 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 the change field and you hit replace and you put in your practice name and then you start looking at it and you go, well, if this is your corporate compliance program, why aren't you adhering to it? Why aren't you doing the things that it says you're going to be doing? How many times does somebody try to pull the wool over your eyes as a former AUSA and, and say, but, but counselor, we, we have a compliance plan. Look, it's right here. Yeah, so so in, in the cases I handle under the False Claims Act, um, occasionally, I can't say it was always or often, uh, someone uh, who was with the entity or, or the individual being looked at uh, would raise that they um, had compliance training and they knew what the rules were and that they were abiding by them and they might have something in writing they, they, they present. Now, be fair, when we we have issued OIG subpoenas or CID, we always request any compliance-related material that they have. So if they have a program, that's the time for them to produce it. Now, having said that, the existence of a document that's titled compliance program in of itself doesn't do anything. It's only the, you know, you're scratching the surface because we're focused on activity. We're focused on actions, right? We're focused on events, things that happen. So for example, uh, in most cases, the, re- the responsible individuals were informed of the, of the alleged wrongdoing and they chose to continue on the same path, right? So, so, so they were put on notice. And so the question is when you're notified of a potential violation, what actions did you take? Did you conduct an investigation? Did you hire outside consultant to actually do an audit? So we look at those things to see if there was any activities performed by the entity that would speak to a compliance program. So we're not, nobody buys the, here's my compliance program. That's the end of the discussion. No, because we look again, like my two doctors, you know, six plus years they're doing this. I mean, the whistleblower was an optometrist that worked for them. He went to them on more than one occasion uh, with uh, his suspicion. I mean, what was happening was that he would see patients and on the uh, the super bill, the this sheet where they have all of the procedure codes and all the procedures and and the optometrist or the doctor, they they check off the procedure with the code for the service they rendered. Well, what was happening is that front office, but under the direction of the doctors, the ophthalmologists, they were checking off, you know, this service, this code for tonography. The super sheet didn't call it tonography, they call it uh, eye pressure, very innocuous, mm-hmm. right? They didn't even call it tonography, but they were using the tonography CPT procedure code. So you, you, you're, there's a situation where um, he def- uh, determines that this is happening. Um, he consults outside of the cl- clinic with uh, you know, the American Academy of Ophthalmology and other ophthalmologists, and he's able to discern that this code is for tonography and they don't have the equipment to perform it and they don't perform it. So he goes and informs the medical director and the owner, Hey, this is going on. Um, now at first they'll say, Oh yeah, we'll look into it. Right. But they never, they never stopped it. It kept on going on and on and on and on. So if they're coming, if they're coming to me and saying, well, look, we got to come now they didn't, but let's just say they had come to me and said, well, here we have, we have compliance training once a month. 
annually, semi-annually. Uh, you know, here's a sheet of attendance. You know, here are the people that attended it. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter because right. they were informed of the problem. The problem was legit. There was a violation. It continued. It didn't stop. So you can have a great compliance plan, right? Because that's what that is, a compliance plan, right. or you call it a program. But if you don't use it, if the only purpose is to show regulators that you have one, it's not going to be a shield from uh, liability, civil liability, or criminal prosecution. Okay, so you have to be actively using this thing. When That's my right. example, the whistleblower uh, or an anonymous caller or someone says, "I I think that Dr. Smith is accepting bribes in return for referrals to a home health agency." All right, well, you know what? What do you do with that information? Government says if you have a compliance program, OIG says if you have a compliance program, you 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 document the complaint and then you investigate the complaint and then you come to some resolution on the complaint. Mm -hmm. And so if the regulators come to visit you and they already know about the complaint and they look to see if there is any documentation of the complaint or resolution of the complaint or investigation of the complaint and you don't have it other than just the, the, the plan then you right. don't have a compliance program. That's right. And and that's such a great point. So, you know, you're, you know, I tell people all the time your compliance program has to be a living breathing document. And, you know, we're talking about things such as, you know, and you use a great term, actionable, right? We're talking about steps to create a risk assessment, right? You need to have a risk management process. You need to have a risk tailored resource allocation. You need updates and revisions. You need to document lessons learned. Your policies and procedures, they've got to be well-designed, right? They have to be centered to your practice, not just what works in the general case. And your policies should be forged based on what your internal audits and your internal investigations point to as possible, probable, or suspected issues or problems so that you're able to show corrective action. You're able to show resolution. And then again, training and communication, as Jose said, so important. It is not enough just to document that somebody issued a complaint. You've got to do a bona fide investigation. You've got to create a corrective action plan and you have to communicate the shifts in your compliance operations to your, all employees irrespective of their level of employment in your organization. I don't care if they're the janitor, the CEO, the chairman of the board, or members of your board of director, uh, directors. They all have fiduciary and they have moral, ethical, and legal obligations to the corporation, to the entity and, that they serve. And here's another thing to keep in mind, particularly yeah. for publicly traded companies that have to report to their shareholders in their annual report, uh, any potential liability. So if they're hit with a CID or an OIG subpoena, they have to report that to their yep. shareholders. So it behooves the, the corporate officers and the management team to have a robust compliance program that can better protect the entity, the corporation from civil liability or worse, uh, because those are reportable events. Uh, that they have to report. They, so they, because otherwise they're going to have SEC issues on top of their 
healthcare issues if they're not reporting those kind of events or occurrences. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. The other thing too to keep in mind is that, and, and those who have been in this industry like yourself, Sean, for a long time, understand um, that healthcare costs in this country um, is probably now, if not already, in excess of $4 trillion a year, right? Uh, three to $4 trillion a year. It's probably around 20% of the gross national product in this country. So that means that every dollar that's spent in this country, 20 cents goes towards medical care, healthcare, okay? And so why do I bring that up? Because that, that, what that creates is um, motivation for private equity, uh, venture capitalists, uh, investors to, to put money in healthcare, all right? And so the risk there for the venture capitalists, private equity investors is that they don't know healthcare. Um, it's not like retail, it's different, it's highly regulated. And, and it can be easy to get tripped up and, and, and expose yourself to liability. So, um, it, and we see this with entrepreneurs. People are just starting out in the business, um, getting involved in the business uh, through the internet, right? Uh, maybe they want to get into telemedicine, for example, or telehealth, um, oh, yeah. or, or they want to, you know, uh, they want to somehow use the internet to, to sell services or, or products that, that, are regulated by, you know, the healthcare uh, regulators. Um, and it's always like fast and furious, right? Want to make a big buck, want to make a lot of money, and then we'll deal with this stuff later. But I say it was going to come back at some point, and it's going to bite you in a way that you maybe didn't anticipate or appreciate it. And so I would say I, I appreciate your desire to, to have a successful business, uh, to make, have a profitable business, but don't lose sight the fact that in this industry, healthcare, um, you could be exposing yourself to criminal prosecution, not just civil liability, because you just ignored it, right? You didn't you didn't take the time to to make that part of your your business plan, part of your planning, part of your startup, and and I guess part of it too is cost because it is costly. Yeah. Right. It, it, it costs, is, but it costs money to have a compliance program. It costs money to hire lawyers. It costs money to hire consulting firms. But, you know, it's it's the old adage. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. And exactly it'll cost you now. Say. Then it's going to cost you later. Uh, but like That's anything exactly. else, you, 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 it, some people will listen. Right. And some people won't. And, and it's just unfortunate. But that's why we do these podcasts. That's why you that's do these right. podcasts is to let people know that there are some real consequences if you don't at least make a good faith effort to understand and comply with the rules and regulations for healthcare services, healthcare products, medical device, you know, pharmaceutical, et cetera. And I can't emphasize enough that it's important to, to if, uh, you know, depending on your situation, to consult, uh, have outside consultants like your company that does compliance work, uh, like myself, you know, healthcare attorneys in compliance in that area uh, to guide you, to advise you, um, to help you to, so that you don't run afoul of these rules or be the subject of a search warrant or prosecution. Right. Uh, and, I, and, and so in, in my perspective, with my 20 plus years of experience as an AUSA, having personally initiated, uh, overseeing many, many, many investigations, working with DEA, FBI, OIG, 
various Mufukos, Medicaid fraud control units around the country, multi-jurisdictional investigations involving a wide swath of healthcare enterprises. Uh, you know, so I, someone like myself can bring a lot to the, to the conversation. And Absolutely. so I'm not saying you should hire me, right? But I think that when you're looking for an attorney to assist you in this area, you, you should look for someone who has some experience uh, dealing with this type of issues, uh, particularly someone who has worked for the government, understands uh, the process, has, has themselves done the process, and, and, and is better able to quickly tell you, okay, this is what you need to do. This is, you know, that's a rabbit hole. Don't go there. Do this, do that. Uh, saves you time, ultimately will save you some money too, and maybe keep you out of jail. Absolutely. So well said. You know, I, I want to make one final quick uh, point. You know, you brought up PE, right? And the infusion of money that our industry has seen. I think that has created a whole new level of risk for health systems, hospitals, providers, um, because a lot of things that PE, um, these mezzanine financing, these um, angel financiers, you know, some of the other industries where they're able to get away with kickbacks or other things like that to a certain degree, right? The regulatory landscape in healthcare is way beyond anything of almost any other industry. People talk about the banking industry. I think our regulations dwarf the banking industry. I think, in my opinion, if I can be so humble to say it, I think the most complex industry next to healthcare is probably nuclear uh, with the level of regulation. But healthcare is a 27-headed monster that continues to sprout new heads each and every single day. And I think as more private investors, as more outside influences begin to impact our industry, I think more schemes, more artifice, more, more opportunities for the, for the government to investigate and determine that there is bad actors, there are bad things going on. Uh, we're going to see so much more. And, you know, coming out, I tell people all the time, you know, prior to the pandemic, committing a crime against the federal payer programs is never a smart thing to do. But committing a crime during a public health emergency, it's a death sentence. And I really believe what I've seen starting in Q3, Q4 of 2021, and the number of CIDs that have been issued, the number of audits that are taking place from um, the MAX, from the MIX, from the CERT programs and the investigations that are happening by the Mafukas, the investigations that are happening by the UPICs, 2022 is going, uh, is going to go down on record as probably one of the biggest years of recoveries. Go ahead, please. Yeah, Sean, let me say this too, because please. I think it's important. Uh, so during the COVID-19 pandemic, we, you, we've had the, these, these loans, these business loans that have been coming out, the PPP oh, yeah. loans, and then you have the provider relief funds that have also been been handed out. It would not surprise me and should not shock anyone if two, three, four, five years out, there are a number of open civil slash criminal investigations into providers, uh, businesses that took the government up on the money and basically used the money for their own personal benefit, right? Oh, yeah. uh, Lamborghinis, 
Rolls Royces, exotic trips to Europe, uh, a set a vacation home on the Keys in Florida. I mean, so and and this isn't stuff I'm just making up. There's already been a few cases I've seen already, this. already publicized yeah. that this has happened. Um, but uh, I I just and I think many folks who are probably going to listen to this podcast can probably in their circle of acquaintances and friends and neighbors have probably seen activity that they may, maybe made them scratch their head and say, right. gee, how is it possible they can put in a brand new spanking Olympic-sized pool when three months ago they looked like they were struggling, right? How can it be that they had, they were driving a 1978 Chevy and now they got a brand new spanking BMW, right? That's Where did right. that money magically come from? So it wouldn't surprise me. It will not shock me that there's going to be a lot more activity coming out of the pandemic yep. from individuals who have committed fraud, uh, taking the, those loans and not employing them like they claimed they were going to employ them. They certified to the government that they had a need for this money and it was related to the COVID pandemic. And, and it's going to come out that many of these folks didn't spend that money like it was intended to be spent. That's right. Yep. And, and, and we're so, already so I think that's it. coming. I think yep. that's coming. You're right. All right. So the last thing that I want to do, because we were talking about CIDs and, and counselor, just tell me if, if I'm hitting the mark on these. And I know you will. If I'm if I'm not spot on, I know you'll I know you'll make it spot on. So just a couple of wrap ups on the CIDs. Right. When it comes to strategies, because I always want to make sure that our listeners walk away from our program with some actionable things, some things that they need to be very aware of. So we talked about section, um, section 3733 um, with respect to the CIDs, right? Because again, it's important to remember that the DOG, DOJ's power with respect to CIDs is not limitless, right? Because the section of the law does place some restrictions on the scope of the DOJ CID authority, right? And a couple of those, they're very straightforward. One of them is that the DOJ cannot demand anything that would be protected from disclosure under the standards applicable to subpoenas, meaning anything to aid in a grand jury investigation or the standards applicable, if you will, to discovery requests under the federal rules of civil procedure, except to the extent that the application of such standards so, so, and yeah, demand so, is so let me Let right. me stop you right there, John, because I Please. want to make sure the listeners understand this because it, it can be confusing when you're comparing yes. search warrants, grand jury subpoenas, OIG subpoenas, and CIDs. CIDs are, and this is one of the primary reasons why DOJ uses CIDs. They're very broad, very, very broad and very encompassing. The limitations you speak of are very few, if any, okay? Because um, for, so as long the only privileges, the only true privileges that can be raised to avoid um, turning over documents or information um, is attorney client privilege. Right. You have direct communication with an attorney regarding a pending matter or potential litigation, uh, potential, possibly attorney work product in preparation, trial preparation, preparing for trial. Those are the two areas I would say that is protected from disclosure. So let's say let's say you want to raise, um, for example, um, somebody said, well, I got an order of protection, you know, in another case, it says I, I can't do that. Uh, I got a not non-disclosure agreement, a non-disclosure right. agreement. I, I, I can't I can't do this. Uh, you know, I got sealed settlement. You know, I'm, I, I'm not I'm sorry, government. I, I can't. 
Wrong, wrong, and wrong. The government gets all of it. All of it. Okay? It's the government's right, not yours. And so you're not going to be held liable or responsible. If that's the if that's a true concern, right? you're not going to be held responsible or liable because you are responding to a lawfully issued and served CID that requires you to turn over that information. Okay. Now you may have a requirement to inform the other party or the court that you received a CID, <clears throat> in which case maybe the other party wants to object. It's, honestly, it's not going to go anywhere. The CID right. is still going to get the, the, the information. So, so another one is, well, you know what? What, what, what if I plead the fifth amendment? Well, documents can't plead the Fifth Amendment, all right? So if it's a production of documents, you got to turn them over. There's no Fifth Amendment for documents. But let's say, because uh, we didn't get into it, the, 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 let me say real quick, CID, three things, right? Written yep. interrogatories, we talked yep. about that, questions. Production of documents, yep. that's paper documents and electronically stored information, ESI. All right? yep. So that your hard drives, your phones, your, your tablets, Anywhere you store electronic information is game on, all right? And the third thing is testimony. So I, I've done it. Uh, you know, I, I took the testimony in one case, I think six, eight doctors, right? So that's like a deposition where I bring them in. If they're sworn under oath by a, a court reporter, I ask them questions, they respond. So there they might say, well, I'll take the Fifth Amendment. Uh, not, it didn't happen in, in my matters, but it, they could say, hey, I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment. Uh, important to note that you can have your attorney with you for those uh, oral testimonies. Uh, you can, and, and if you're a company, you can have like one corporate representative with you as well. Now, anybody else, it has to be by agreement with the prosecutor. Okay, if you want someone else in there, uh, then you have to agree to it. But you, generally, it's the prosecutor, the court reporter, defense lawyer, and or, or the witness's lawyer, and 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 the actual witness himself or herself. So, so let's say they raise the fifth amendment. So, hey, you know what? Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to answer that question. Under law, uh, 18 U.S.C. 6004, the attorney general can issue an order uh, requiring them, compelling them under Title 18, Part 5 to give testimony. OK, they can compel oh, wow. them to give testimony. Now, you say, OK, well, what does that do for me? Well, that means that they can't use that testimony in a criminal proceeding against you, except for. If you lie, then you've committed perjury and they can get you for perjury or you say, sorry, I'm not going to answer anyway. They can they can then say for failure to comply with the requirement to give testimony to the government. So now Would that I never be had contempt? that situation. It's probably going to be a rare occasion when that happens. Just to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, rare. Would that, that be a contempt? Fifth or that, you know, we have to go to the process of of basically. Um, uh, compelling them to testify and, and, and knowing that they're they're not going to be prosecuted for what they say under oath. All right. So that's something that I think people need to understand. It's not simply I plead the fifth and it's the end of the story. So there's potential more to it. The other big thing that I think is important to know about CIDs is that don't modify the documents. Don't add things. Don't subtract things. Don't destroy the documents, okay? Don't don't lie, don't lie in the interrogatories. Don't lie on, when you're at, the, at to giving your oral testimony because number one, you do not know what the government knows. The government already have answers to some of these questions, and they're just and so they're asking the questions. They may already know the answer to them. 
So if you lie to the government, all right, now you're facing an 18 U.S.C. 1001 prosecution for giving a false statement to a law enforcement official. So now you're, you know, what was a routine request for information has now turned into a criminal prosecution against you for lying to the government, right? Or let's say you destroy documents. Well, that's spoilation of evidence. So, in a, so if you end up going to civil, a civil case, you're not going to be allowed to use that, that as a defense. And the government can, they'll get a, a the court will, will give a, a instruction to the jury that they can have a negative inference the fact that you destroyed those records. So they can infer that there was bad, you know, bad faith on your part, that you were trying was to hide that? something. So that's yeah. one thing. And then there's obstruction of justice. Now that that's one I where can't I was emphasize going, enough. So if you if you destroy documents, modify, do anything that in any way gives anything less than complete answers and complete information and documents to the government, they could bring an obstruction of justice charge against you, just like the false statement charge. So again, what was considered maybe a routine request for information now has turned into a potential criminal prosecution for false. And that has happened. Uh, not in my particular case, but I knew of other cases in my office where that happened. The individual either destroyed a document or, or worse, they modified a document. And the government already had an original, a, a true copy of the original. So when they got the modified one next to the, the true copy, they went after the individual for obstruction of justice. Uh, and so, and so, so this is, this and, is and, and I've serious, seen that, yeah. not something to joke around with. Yeah, I've seen that. The, the I've seen more obstruction charges coming in the recent years in some of these cases. Um, I've seen contempt uh, when somebody has been compelled to testify and they've refused. So, yeah, those are all great points. But, you know, I think the point where I was trying to, you know, finalize is really from a practical matter, right? That oftentimes the DOJ is willing to work with an entity to narrow some CID request uh, items uh, to, to avoid discovery type disputes. I, I, I see it all the time. But people, you know, you need to understand that there are limits to how far the DOJ is willing to go in negotiating the scope of a CID request. Because if they believe, from my experience, that a party is pushing back too hard, they'll just seek judicial relief. Remember, CIDs have the right to be enforced and challenged in federal court. So although judicial relief is available to both the DOJ and a CID recipient, litigation typically favors the DOJ because the CIDs are created as an administrative subpoena. And really, judicial review in the grand scheme of things can be quite narrow. So the CIDs are generally going to be enforced so long as the information sought is relevant and material to the investigations. And, and the final thing that I would say here is that because the DOJ CID authority is really broad and the statutory grounds for being able to challenge the authority are fairly narrow, responding to a CID appropriately and strategically from the outset is critical. That's why you need somebody like my good friend, Jose Vela. That's why you need somebody who is a healthcare-centered, well-grounded, well-versed, 
well-experienced attorney. And I will tell you, um, the number of cases that I work on each and every single year that are brought to me, oh, let me, let me rephrase that. The number of cases that are brought to me annually by attorneys who are dabbling in healthcare, those are the cases that I shy away from. Because when I have an attorney who dabbles in healthcare, but their real expertise are in family law or real estate law or tax law, they're not going to be a benefit to me. They're not going to be a benefit to their client. And the client's bills are going to be outrageous because of the amount of time that I have to engage in educating their attorney on matters of regulatory compliance, on matters of coding, billing, documentation. So please, as, as Jose and I have talked about throughout this podcast, you could either pay a little bit now or you could pay a whole bunch on the back end. Having a corporate compliance program is a must, but it must be a living, breathing, actionable document that points to the steps taken when bad things happen to reverse course and to ensure that they don't happen again. So with all that said, I want to say thank you to my good friend, Jose. I've learned so much. Um, you know, I, I I tell people every single day, my life is a a journey in education. And anybody who works in healthcare, you can't just sit back and relax. You have to stay on top of this stuff because it's so relevant. It's so prevalent. And irrespective of your role in an organization, each one of us is considered an entity, if you will, in healthcare, which means if we were a perpetrator or we played a part in a scheme or an artifice or a crime against the government, we can be personally held responsible under the laws of this country. So be smart, stay abreast of the changes, do your part to always do the right thing and continue to educate yourself every single day. Again, on behalf of the Compliance Group um, uh, podcast, the Compliance Guy podcast team, on behalf of myself, Sean Weiss, I want to say thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me today. Jose, I want to give you the last word, and then we're going we're gonna, to uh, uh, get out of here, my friend. Let me, again, thank you, Sean, for inviting me to, on your podcast and giving me the opportunity to um, if nothing else, briefly discuss uh, the civil investigative demand in, in, uh, under the False Claims Act with your audience. I hope it, it's useful for them and, and at least gives them some idea of what, what's involved. Um, but let me, let me finish by saying, uh, and I think it can't be said enough, uh, uh, to all of those in your audience who are frontline responders, police officers, firemen, uh, EMTs, doctors, nurses, technicians, uh, who have been um, caring for individuals who have unfortunately fallen ill uh, or have passed away because of COVID. Um, a, a big thank you, a big hug, uh, a great appreciation for everything that you've done, everything you continue to do. I know it's hard. I, I know it, it's overly demanding and taxing and, and it's like a marathon that never ends. Uh, so I hope that one day that this does come to an end. 
Um, but again, uh, on behalf of myself, my family, my friends, my acquaintances, uh, and all those that I know of, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for everything you do. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Counselor. Again, folks, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode today with my good friend, Jose Vela. Um, Jose is a senior uh, counselor with Clark Hill. He is based out of Houston, Texas. Not only is he a great guy, he's a great patriot of this country. He served with distinction for 28 plus years in the United States military. He had a 20-year unbelievable career as an AUSA in Texas, and he is without a doubt somebody who I continue to learn from on a daily basis. I keep up with his blogs. If you're not connected with Jose, he's always on LinkedIn. You can find him on LinkedIn. Uh, he's got a great profile, lots of information out there. Um, Jose, I hope you'll come back on the program again here in the near future. We'll find some more topics for us to discuss and we'll we'll kind of just pick up where we're leaving off today. But to all of our viewers, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, take care.